From Nashville, Tennessee, it's the weekly Grace Church Nashville podcast. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at Grace Church Nash and use the hashtag located in the podcast description. And now, here's this week's message. Well, it's such a joy to be here. I just want to say happy holidays, Merry Christmas, all the above. You know, I was very conflicted coming this morning. I told Pastor Larry, I said, you know, I I don't have a holiday message. Is that okay or do we need to change things? He said, that's perfectly fine. And I do feel conflicted about that because, you know, I'm a pastor down in Alabama and I'm very well aware of how how much our minds are on the holidays. You know, once we hit Thanksgiving, it's like, whoop, we go right into holiday mode all the way till New Year's, which is good. There's a, a certain beauty about that. But I also sense the Lord wants to speak to us something specific today that will keep our spiritual senses awake. Um, again, it's not bad at all to get into a rhythm of the holidays and seeing the beauty of Jesus through the different activities. But there's also a sense of spiritual vigilance that I believe the Lord has called us to even in this season, especially this month, as we are preparing our hearts to go into a new year. So to talk about that kind of spiritual vigilance, I believe the Lord's called us to, we're going to go to the book of Ezekiel, which is kind of a dangerous book. So book of Ezekiel chapter three, and I'm going to read a passage there, which a lot of us are probably familiar with, especially the first half of the passage, but our emphasis is really going to land on the second half of the passage. So Ezekiel chapter 3, we're going to start in verse number 16. So we're going to read this passage together, and then I want to tell you a story. And the story comes from an experience I had with God back in June of 2020 that was really transformational in nature and began to set the trajectory for what the last you know year and a half has looked like for me. And uh, I'm going to give you a few details about that encounter in just a moment. First, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 3, verse number 16. Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, You will have delivered your soul. Now, that's the part most of us are familiar with. A lot to think about there. I think one of the shining revelations of God in that passage is his kindness and love and his mercy. Because he speaks to Ezekiel and he says, listen, when I speak to you about the wicked being judged for their wickedness, the whole point of that is because I want them to repent and to turn to life says later in Ezekiel, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? And the Bible says, of course, no, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn, repent, 
and be saved. So it reveals the beauty of the Lord and his mercy, his forgiveness, his love toward man. And he's holding Ezekiel to a high standard of accountability. Why? Because he wants his salvation to be known in the earth. Now, in this passage, this call of Ezekiel to be a watchman, a lot of times we stop right there at verse 21, but the rest of the chapter, 22 all the way through 27, has a lot to teach us about what it means to be a watchman. Then the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he said to me, Arise, go into the plain, and there I shall talk with you. Interesting. He was by the river. Then God says, go to the plain because I want to say something to you, which makes me wonder why didn't God just say what he wanted to say to Ezekiel while he was there, still there by the river. And I have found that sometimes God has to put you in different places to see things in ways that you've never seen it before. So he says, listen, I've spoken to you here at the river and you've heard one thing about being a watchman. Now I'm going to take you down to the plane and tell you something else about being a watchman because your perspective needs to be multifaceted. I need you to see something about this call that is more than just one dimension. And he speaks to him further in verse 23. So I arose and went into the plane and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there like the glory which I saw by the river Chabar when I fell on my face. Now when he says in verse 23, it was the glory like I saw by the river. You got to go back to Ezekiel chapter one and you find out that glory was an inferno. It was this whirlwind engulfed in flame that showed these heavenly creatures that I still can't wrap my imagination around. They're full of wings and eyes and faces and it's just a very bizarre encounter. But Ezekiel is saying that whirlwind inferno experience came back to me in the plain and out of this second encounter with the glory of the Lord, he began to speak to me in a fresh way about my assignment as a watchman. Verse 24, then the spirit entered me and set me on my face and spoke with me and said to me, go shut yourself inside your house. And you, O son of man, surely they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so that you cannot go out among them. I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and not be one to rebuke them for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, he who hears, let him hear and he who refuses, let him refuse for they are a rebellious house. Let's pray. Father, we ask today that you would give us an eye to see and an ear to hear. As it says in the book of Proverbs, you're the one who gives us the seeing eye and the hearing ear. Lord, we want to be those that Jesus described in the book of Revelation that has an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Lord, we don't want to be asleep in a moment where you are speaking, but may we, like Samuel, be in your presence, in your glory, hearing your voice, and being awakened to what you want to say in this hour for our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you a story of what happened to me in June of 2020. I had this encounter with God in the middle of the night, actually in the early morning hours, and I would call it a dream, but it was something a little more than a dream. It came through a dream, but it was something more than that. 
Dreams kind of, I don't know, I guess you could break them down sort of into three different categories. There's some dreams that are just dreams. It's like your soul's kind of working out its own stuff. You know, you kind of dream about things that have been on your mind, uh, what you ate. I mean, there's all kinds of things like your brain is trying to filter what's going on and process the events in your life. So there's that. And I'm not saying you can't get God's stuff out of that. You can, but sometimes it takes a little work. And, you know, there's some dreams that reveal to you the thoughts of your own heart. And sometimes those are very helpful because it shows what's going on in there. So those are those dreams. Then there are dreams that are like clearly from God, but they're not necessarily jolt you awake out of an encounter type thing. It's like you wake up and as you're waking up and getting your morning routine, you may be in prayer and the word, getting a cup of coffee and you're like, oh, what? wait a minute. I, I had a dream last night and that was, that was pretty clear, like spirit language. Like I think God was saying something and you know, you, you get that kind of thing and it's a little more straightforward. Okay. I think God was saying this, which is wonderful. I love those, you know, and actually it is kind of a holiday tie in talking about dreams. If Joseph didn't have dreams, Jesus would have been killed as a baby. So I'm thankful that God speaks in that Avenue, finding ways to try to tie this into the holidays. All right. So then there's a, then there's like a third category of dream that dreams that it's not just, oh, I remembered something. It really is maybe a little more what Daniel described as a night vision, where it's this encounter with God that jolts you awake. And it's not a, did I have a dream last night? It's, I just had a God encounter through a dream and he woke me up immediately aware of the presence of God. And so I've had a handful of those kind of third category God encounter night vision dreams. One of the most significant was in June of 2020. In the dream, I'm sitting at a church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I'm having to restrain myself from saying roll tide right now. But my wife graduated from Alabama. I didn't grow up an Alabama fan, but she did. And so, you know, when we got married, I thought it's not worth the fight. I'm just going to convert and, you know, much, much easier lifestyle. So that's what, that's what I did. So, um, so I was in Tuscaloosa, Alabama in the dream at a church called the First Wesleyan Church. Since then, they changed their name. And um, I don't know the reason why, but they did. I, maybe to connect with the college students to try to be more relevant or something. So anyway, so I'm at this church, First Wesleyan Church. is a church I had visited before. And, you know, I was addressed appropriately for the church setting. Um, you know, at the ramp in Hamilton, we're very youth-oriented. So a lot of our style of dress isn't always tr- traditionally flavored. You know, it's a little more appropriate to our assignment. But at this church, it is more traditionally flavored. So I was wearing a blazer. I, I looked a little more put together than I typically would. And I'm there. But while I'm there, I'm sitting further back toward the exit. So stage left, I start to feel this breeze blowing on me. And I know this is not coming from an air conditioner vent. It feels like a breeze from outside. And I'm looking around because I'm in the sanctuary and I'm not near a door, but it feels like there's a window with a door open. And I'm like, this breeze is unusual. And so I turn to the gentleman sitting beside me and I'm about to ask him the question, do you feel that breeze? When all of a sudden the breeze turns into a whirlwind. And it's not just a breeze anymore that I'm feeling individually. It is a whirlwind that shows up and it picks up everyone in the sanctuary and we are all flying in the air in this whirlwind. Now I use the word, I use the word whirlwind rather than tornado because tornado feels a little destructive and kind of evil, but this was like a God whirlwind. I knew it was God. I knew it was good. I knew it was disruptive, but it was very holy. And so I'm caught in this whirlwind and I'm flying around the sanctuary along with everyone else. And as I'm flying 
through the air in about two seconds, I'm thinking like, a, like several significant things. It's amazing how much your brain can think through things in just a short amount of time when you're having an interesting experience. Some of you experience that on the highway, you know, you're close to a wreck and then like, you know, 20 things go through your mind in two seconds. It was that kind of thing. So number one, the first thing I'm thinking while I'm in the air is I am experiencing God in a tangible way. God's real. This is crazy. And it was amazing because though I've experienced God in, in very, very real ways, that kind of tangible physicality to God, I had not experienced before. And I'm blown away because I'm like, wow, that breeze I was experiencing individually, it was a tangible manifestation of God. Now I am tangibly experiencing God through this whirlwind. God is real. Sometimes we just need a fresh encounter to realize God is real. We, don't, we do not serve an imaginary God. This is not a self-help program. We serve the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, who is real, and he actually came as a baby in a manger. He lived in history. He was crucified, buried. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. But the Bible says in the book of Acts that the heavens will retain him until the time of the restoration of all things, and then he will descend with a shout. I mean, that's the God that we serve, a real flesh and blood Jesus who's still a man in heaven right now making intercession for us. This is amazing. We need to, we again, really need to come back to the historical reality that Jesus is not a figment of our imagination. I was listening to a theologian one time who's from England and he was doing some radio talks or maybe a television program talking about the historical Jesus. And he said, someone contacted him and said, wow, I never knew that Jesus actually was a historical figure. I thought when people talked about Jesus and said, hey, do you believe in Jesus? It was like saying, do you believe in Peter Pan? He's like, I never knew he was an actual man. And we need to come back to that reality, just the simplicity that the God we serve is real. All right, so there was that. So I'm, I'm in the air. Yeah, God's real. It's awesome. So I'm in the air. I'm flying around. I'm like, God is real. I'm experiencing him change. But that's one thing. The second thing I'm thinking is this. Oh, this is what revival is. What I meant by that in the dream was, oh, this is what the revivalists of old meant when they used the word revival. It's when God just shows up. And I realized in that moment, what I had been calling revival was actually just really good services. But there was a difference in that moment between in my understanding, between really good services and revival. And it made me, it gave me this hunger to start praying for revival again. Because it's like, God, if this is what revival is, where you just show up and do whatever you want to, I want this all the time. This is not difficult. This is not hard. This is what I want. The real God showing up and revealing himself beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the one true living God. It's like, wow, God, this is amazing. I want this all the time. This is what, if this is what revival is, no wonder the men and women of God of old prayed for revival because this is life-changing. That's the second thing I'm thinking. The third thing I'm thinking is this is kind of unusual because this is not necessarily a church that's contending for revival. I'd been to that church. I visited that church. And I'm not saying anything negative about it. It was a good church, but it wasn't like... You know, they were having prayer meetings and going after revival in this groaning intercession. God just chose to show up. And it broke my box to say, God, maybe you just want to show up because you just want to show up. 
That doesn't mean we stop praying for revival. It's that we expand our expectation to say God can show up wherever and whenever and to whomever he wants to. Actually, when Moses says, God, show me your glory, how does God respond? I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. In other words, part of the manifestation of the glory of God is he does whatever he wants to, and he may not always ask our consent. That's what I was thinking in the dream. He didn't even ask our consent. He didn't ask anybody in the church, hey, can I show up today? He said, I'm coming, I'm coming to church today. So he came. Uh, we're all in this whirlwind. The, probably the fourth thing I was aware of, and I'm aware of this really throughout the dream, is when I wake up, I probably need to go read the book of Ezekiel. I kept thinking that throughout the dream. And that'll become more clear later on. I'm, I probably need, I've got some homework to do. This, this dream is not just an encounter. It's giving me some homework. I need to go read the, read the book of Ezekiel. Why? Because as I just mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 1, he gets caught up in the whirlwind. He experiences the glory of God in this blazing inferno. Now, my dream didn't have the inferno part. I'm kind of thankful for that. But it didn't have the whirlwind part. And it's not just Ezekiel chapter 1. It's Ezekiel chapter 3. And it's several times throughout the book that he is caught up in the whirlwind. He's over in Babylon, part of the exiles. But the whirlwind takes him in the spirit to Jerusalem. And he starts prophesying over the temple before it's destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So a lot is going on in the book of Ezekiel. So I'm aware I'm getting caught in this whirlwind. It's as though Ezekiel came to church today. And I need to make sure I go study the book. So we're flying around. And then all of a sudden, the second half of the dream is... Boom, the whirlwind drops me out of the, out of the air and I land in the middle of the sanctuary. And when I land, there's a group of about 10 men surrounding me. And without my consent, I begin to prophesy. Now, when I say I begin to prophesy without my consent, here's what I mean. It's as though God hijacks my mouth in the dream and starts speaking through me because my brain doesn't know what I'm talking about. And so, you know, if you've ever operated in some kind of prophetic gift, you know that a lot of times you you hear something or you sense something, and even though you want to be faithful to release it the way that you've heard it or sensed it, there's still some level of it going through your understanding before it comes comes out of your mouth. This was not like that. In this encounter, it did not buy, it did not go through my understanding on any level. It just came out of my mouth and my brain is thinking, what am I talking about right now? And actually there was, it sounds like this heavy encounter. There's actually kind of a lot of humor in it because it was just almost so funny to me how much God was just doing whatever he wanted to. And so I began to prophesy to the men around me and I prophesied and I spoke with this intense authority and I said it, and I'll, I'll say it kind of in three sections, what I said. The first thing I said was this. I said, God is looking for watchmen or cities will be no more. Now, I said something in three segments. And I said it as one continuous thought, but I'll break it down. So the first thing was, God is looking for watchmen or cities will be no more. And when I say that, I know what I mean is that God is looking for people who will take spiritual ownership of their city and become a people of intercession. Now, when we say the word watchman, there's sort of three different senses of being a watchman. And I'll talk about the last one in more detail in just a moment. The first one is that very vocal role of warning. That's what we read about in the first half of the passage today. That if I speak to you about warning people, you have to warn them. If not, I'll hold you accountable. So there's the vocal side of being a watchman. We see later in Ezekiel, there's an intercessory side of being a watchman that is not just speaking to 
men about God, but speaking to God about men. We see that in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, where God is saying, I look for someone who would stand in the gap, make up the hedge so the city would not be destroyed. But I found no one. Therefore, my judgment came because there was not an intercessor. Can I say something to you? Anytime God speaks to you about pending judgment, it's because he's inviting you to appeal to his mercy. That's why God talks about judgment before it comes. Not so you can go down as the prophet that called it out. God speaks about judgment before it comes because he's looking for someone who will appeal to his mercy as an intercessor. And that's what God was looking for in Ezekiel chapter 22. So one of the roles of being a watchman is to take our place in intercession. We're watching, we're looking on the horizon about what is coming. Then we take our place in intercession by appealing to the mercy of God. And that's what I knew when I said God's looking for watchmen or cities will be no more. I knew that God was looking for intercessors. Men and women of God who would become a spiritual father or a spiritual mother over their city in the realm of the spirit doesn't mean you, you know, the mayor has to give you the key of the city. If he does that, that's great. That's wonderful. But it means in the spirit, you take ownership and you listen to the Lord in the place of intercession. You contend for the city. You, you appeal to the mercy of God. And in doing that, it brings the protection of God over the city. Now, I'll talk about more about the protection of God in just a minute. So that's the first thing I say. God is looking for watchmen or cities will be no more. The second thing I say is this, just like the nine cities in the west of Israel. Now, when I'm saying that, I'm thinking, what nine cities? Is that even in the Bible? Nine cities in the west of Israel that became no more? Is that even historically accurate? So again, my brain is like, I don't even know what I'm saying. Okay, so I'll come back to number two. Let me go ahead and say number three. God's looking for watchmen or cities will be no more. Just like the nine cities in the west of Israel. And then the last thing I say, I don't remember verbatim. It was something along the lines of, and pay attention to someone in the Bible whose name starts with a B because it'll teach you about being a watchman. Okay, so as I'm prophesying all this, I'm like, okay, this is crazy. I got to read the book of Ezekiel. I hope what I'm saying is even biblically accurate. And then I've got lots of homework to do when I wake up to go study Ezekiel, figure out nine cities, somebody whose name that starts with a B, it teaches about being a watchman. Now, after I prophesy all of this, God's looking for watchmen, the cities will be no more, just like the nine cities in the west of Israel. Pay attention to someone whose name that starts with a B, it'll teach about being a watchman. After I get done prophesying that, God sort of uh, lets go of my mouth in the dream, my brain kicks in, and I start laughing, looking at the guys around me, I go, what does that even mean? Like that. Now, last part of the dream, and this part is kind of sobering, as though that wasn't. But this next part is kind of sobering and sad. The way the dream ends is I am walking out of the exit to the sanctuary, and it's very similar to this, um, but the the, uh, chairs wrap around a little more, and I'm going up the ramp to go out of the sanctuary, and as I'm going out... I real, I'm hearing either the pastor or the person that's in charge of the MC role in the service. I'm hearing them go on with church announcements. And it makes me sad and it grieves me because I realize after the whirlwind left, they just put everything back together as though God never showed up. And they just went on with their service. And it grieved me because I realized they didn't hear the message that came in the whirlwind. And rather than becoming watchmen, they preferred to go on with their lives. And it made me say, God, I want to make sure 
that I'm not just enjoying the encounter, but not hearing the message that comes out of the encounter. Listen, I have a, I have a wonderful relationship, a tricky relationship with the word encounter. I love encounters because they have changed my life, encountering the real love of Jesus. But if we're not careful, we can get into a church culture that is so interested in encounter that what we really mean is spiritual gluttony that never does anything with what God says to us and speaks to us. I love encounter, but at the end of the day, we are not judged by Jesus based upon the depths of our encounter. We're judged by Jesus based upon the accuracy of our obedience. And so I want to make sure it it put in me this fear of the Lord to say, God, I'm thankful for what you invite us to experience in you. But God, lead us, convict us where we've been negligent of what you have said to us in the encounters. I want to, I want to do more than experience a whirlwind. I want to be commissioned by the whirlwind because that's what Ezekiel did. When Ezekiel experiences the whirlwind and the glory of God, he doesn't just have a great experience and then write about it. He receives a commission from the whirlwind. And I believe God wants to give us a commission today. So let me go back to number two. Just like the nine cities in the west of Israel. So I wake up and the dream jolts me awake about 4 a.m. That's what I'm talking about. It wasn't like I woke up later in the day and started having breakfast and writing, you know, in my journal. And, oh, I think I had a dream. It's one of those, boom, jolts me awake, aware of the presence of God. I've got to get up right now and write this down and begin to pray into this. So as my day goes on, I start to do my homework. I'm getting into Ezekiel. I'm, I'm doing some research. And I'm like... Were there even nine cities in the west of Israel? Maybe, let me look at the book of Ezekiel. So I'm, I'm reading Ezekiel. I begin to pull up some books online that are, it's some commentary of the Old Testament. <clears throat> and so I'm reading a chapter in this like very old Old Testament commentary. And I think this chapter is introducing the book of Ezekiel. And it says this, in the first chapter, the prophet identifies nine cities in the west of Israel that were appointed for destruction. When I read that, I'm like, God is real. This is amazing. Nine cities in the west of Israel that appointed for destruction. That's what I said in my dream and I had no idea. So I go to Ezekiel chapter one, I open it up and I read the whole chapter and I'm like, they're not there. He doesn't mention nine cities. So I'm like, well, did I get this wrong? What book am I reading? What chapter is this? You know, uh, what Old Testament book is it introducing? So I go back to the book I'm reading online and I realize I'm reading an introduction not to the book of Ezekiel. I'm reading an introduction to the book of Micah. My name is Micah. So when I read that in Micah chapter 1, he names nine cities in the west of Israel that pointed for destruction, I don't even know what it means. I'm just blown away. I'm like, God, you're crazy. I, I can't make up this kind of confirmation. I don't know why it's in Micah rather than Ezekiel, but this is kind of crazy. So I have that encounter on Sunday morning. <clears throat> we have services on Sunday evening there in Hamilton at the ramp. So I get with our team. And, you know, I was planning on preaching someone, something else that day, but, but we gather up for prayer about an hour before service. So I get our team together, and I'm like, hey, guys, this is crazy. I had this encounter with God this morning, and I was still so charged from it. I was like, I just got to tell it to you, because if I don't tell it to you, it's going to be on my brain. I can't think about anything else. Let me just tell it to you. And I still wasn't planning on preaching it that night. Now, after I told them about the encounter, like, you just got to share it. Just go for it. And I was like, okay, we'll do that. So... 
as I'm starting to share with our team about this encounter, I'm talking about the nine cities, I'm talking about the whole thing, you know, I'm just telling the whole story. <clears throat> One of our pastoral leaders, his name is Josh, he thinks to himself, oh man, this encounter, I need to tell this encounter to this other lady named Linda. Now, Linda helps oversee a national prayer network where they do calls about once a week. And they bring up different um, things the Lord's saying um, for the sake of intercession. So Linda leads this, inter- this national prayer network. And she has invited Josh to come share. You know, maybe every couple of months she'll contact him and say, Hey, can you share for the prayer network? And can you uh, just release what you're hearing from the Lord and lead us and that type of thing? So Josh thinks to himself, Oh, it's been a while since I've heard from Linda. I got to make sure I contact her because I think that this will be a real key for that prayer network, so that way we can share it. So he's thinking that in the dream, but he realizes, oh man, I left my phone at home. So that was probably around 5.30. Our service is at 6, around 5.30 he's thinking, oh, I, I gotta contact her, but I left my phone at home. I'll just get back with her when the service is over. <clears throat> we go through the service that night. He gets to his house, and he goes and he gets his phone. And when he gets his phone, he looks at it, he says he's got about five text messages from Linda, the Linda he was thinking about. She started texting him around 5.30, the same moment he thinks, I need to reach out to Linda. The reason she's contacting him is she is saying, Josh, I just feel in my spirit that this week you're supposed to lead the prayer meeting on Wednesday morning. You need to uh, you know, share with us what you're hearing. I feel that like there's something that the Lord wants to speak through you to us. So he texts back, Linda, this is amazing. You know, I felt the same thing. I do have something to share. I'm looking forward to it. They have no further discussion with each other about this dream, about what Linda's hearing. Josh just signs up and says, hey, put me down. I'll leave that Wednesday morning. Wednesday mid-morning, I get a call from Josh right after he gets done sharing with the prayer network. He says, Micah, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? He said, well, I got on this prayer network with Linda and she doesn't say anything to introduce me or set it up. She just says, hey, this is Josh Hollingsworth. He's been on here before. He's gonna lead us this morning. He says, I share the whole dream and charge them to pray and to be watchmen over cities. After I get done, Linda gets on the call and says, Josh, you're not going to believe this. And she says to the prayer network, guys, I didn't tell him anything. She says, today is the last day of a nine-day fast for us. The reason we're fasting for nine days is because God spoke to us about nine cities in America and told us, I want you to pray as watchmen over these nine cities in America and take your role in intercession. When he said that, I was undone. I was driving on my way back from Tennessee, actually. I'd gone to minister on a Tuesday night in Cleveland. And so I was driving back. I was just blown away to say, God, there is something. You're doing. In other words, you want to make sure that we don't ignore this encounter. You want to, you're confirming it to the degree that you're making sure we don't overlook it or forget about it. You're telling us, be a watchman, be a watchman, be a watchman. So let me kind of break that down and talk about what it looks like to be a watchman. And in just a moment, I'll bring in this third factor of someone in the Bible whose name starts with a B. A lot of us, like I said a moment ago, we're very familiar with the vocal side of being a watchman, right? The, The 316, if I speak to you, you don't speak, you're held accountable. Okay, there's that element. Then there's that second element, the call of intercession, A lot of times we overlook the third component of being a watchman, 
And it's simply listening. It's listening. And that actually may be the most important of being a watchman. Break down the word watchman. Watch. I said listening, but also watching. In other words, most of the activity of being a watchman is boring activity. Think about it in the natural. They're just on a wall. They're just hanging out. Just looking around. Anything coming? No, nothing's coming. Look and see what's happening. And God says something interesting to Ezekiel. He says, Ezekiel, go into your house and shut the door. And when you get in there, they're going to tie you up. Who's going to tie him up? I'm just having to assume it's angels. Because later we see somebody or something tying and untying Ezekiel up in his house. So I'm guessing God sent angels to do this. And he says to Ezekiel, your mouth is going to be shut and your tongue is going to cling to the roof of your mouth until I speak to you. And then when I speak to you, they're going to untie you and I'll open your mouth so you can say only what I'm saying. And in that process, he says something very interesting. He says, I'm going to tie you up and I'm going to shut your mouth because... The house of Israel is a rebellious house, and I do not want you to rebuke them. Now, if you know anything about the book of Ezekiel, that sounds rather confusing, because Ezekiel does a lot of rebuking. Like, you get in there, and it's not always the most encouraging book. Now, later he sees a new temple. That's exciting. You get the Valley of Dry Bones. That's great. But like I said a moment ago, the book of Ezekiel is a dangerous book. It's heavy. There's lots of rebuke. There's lots of judgment. There's lots of heavy stuff. God tells Ezekiel to do a bunch of crazy things. And he's like, Lord, please don't like, please don't make me do that. And he's like, okay. Like, you know, one time, I, I'm not even going to describe it. I'm going to let you read it. Go reread the book of Ezekiel and fi- figure out the crazy stuff God tells Ezekiel to do. Right? So we, we see that and we're like, but Ezekiel does rebuke Israel. So why did you tell them? Why did you tell him, I don't want you to rebuke Israel, if he does rebuke Israel? And when we consider that tension, here's the revelation. God is saying to Ezekiel, when you see their rebellion, you're going to want to rebuke them out of your own reaction. But I don't want you to say what you want to say to them. You can only say what I say to you about them. In other words, you're not a watchman because you have a, an opinion that everyone knows about on social media. And we forget that the most significant role of a watchman is shut your mouth and listen for the voice of God. And we think that just because we're being vocal about every issue that pops up, we're being watchmen. No, God called Ezekiel to be a watchman, not a watchdog. Very big difference. What does a watchdog do? A watchdog, I've got a dog that lives in my basement and he runs around my house and all kinds of stuff and woke me up the middle of the night a couple nights ago. A watchdog will bark at anything that's unfamiliar. Which is good when it's a burglar. Bad when it's the delivery man bringing some Christmas gifts to my house. Right? But just because it's unfamiliar, the dog just starts barking. Just starts going crazy, right? How many times have we started barking at stuff that God has sent just because it's unfamiliar? 
We've got to be more careful, more calculated, more weighed in our words and not just start firing off our opinion just because we feel as though we have some kind of scriptural justification for our opinion. We've got to make sure that as watchmen, we are shutting our mouths. We are staying in a place of prayer. We're staying in a place of intimacy with God. And we are listening for the counsel of the spirit revealed through his word. And when the counsel of the spirit revealed through his word comes we turn it first and foremost into intercession where we appeal to the mercy of God and then if he releases us to say it out loud publicly we do that in the right way speaking the truth in love but way too often our watchdog mentality keeps us from having the credibility God wants us to have as watchmen we're not called to be watchdogs we're called to be watchmen We're called to be people who have friendship with God. And as I have been on this watchman journey since June of 2020, what I have realized about it is that the defining factor of being a watchman is simply friendship with God. You hang out with him and you're willing to spend however long just hanging with him. If that means he talks, you're there. That means he doesn't talk, you're still there. I've had some experiences recently where the Lord's woken me up early in the morning. It's not all the time, but every now and then it'd be like a 4 a.m., 5 a.m. thing. I'm like, Lord, I really love like a couple more hours, but you're like undeniably trying to wake me up right now. You know, again, it's not all the time. It's just every now and then. And what I keep feeling every time I'm considering, Lord, I just want to go back to sleep. I just keep sensing again that whole thing of like, I'm just looking for a watchman right now. Sometimes I go and just sit in my living room where I sit on the couch and hang with the Lord. And sometimes it's like, boom, God speaks. Sometimes it's just there. I remember I heard a story one time from a leader named Corey Russell. <clears throat> Corey Russell is a leader at Upper Room in Dallas and uh, comes out of Kansas City with Mike Bickle, International House of Prayer. Corey, Corey Russell said one night the Lord kept waking him up in the middle of the night to get up and pray. He said he tried, he did it once. And, you know, Corey Russell, like many of us, was like, Lord, I'm going to pray while I'm laying here in my bed. <laughs> so he said he kind of stirs himself. He's praying in the spirit and just kind of dozes back off. Right. Second time, the Lord kind of jolts him awake. He's like, oh, Lord, I'll say, wait, this time starts praying in the spirit and then kind of dozes back off. He said third time God wakes him up and he realizes, OK, I've got to get up. I can't do the bed thing. I got to actually get up. So he gets up, goes into his place of prayer. He said, while he's there, he just hangs with the Lord for, for a while. And he said, he doesn't hear anything. The next day, he's in a prayer room. He's walking around a little distraught, like, man, did I miss something? And so he talks to one of the other leaders and says, you know, I had this thing with the Lord last night. He wakes me up to get up and pray. And I go pray, but I don't hear anything. He doesn't speak anything to me. I'm just kind of there. And I feel a little frustrated, like maybe I missed something. And the other leader looks at him and says, no, that was perfect. It's not so much that God had a lot to say. He just wanted you to be with him. And that's really what I'm finding about the rhythm of being a watchman is that it's friendship with God. Again, it's not about us barking at everything that moves, trying to put our Christian opinion on the table. That, that's, ah, that's not it. God will speak to us at times to say certain things, and there are issues that matter, but it's primarily friendship with the Lord and keeping our mouths shut 
and our eyes and ears open until God begins to give us a burden and a place of intercession and then a word to share with others. So last thing, and I'm almost done. This guy or this person starts with a B in the Bible that teaches about being a watchman. I go throughout the book of Ezekiel. I can't find a guy with a B that teaches us about being a watchman. I'm like, Lord, you're going to have to help me. So I just start researching in other ways of Bible study tools. And I found actually not just one name, but two names that teach us about the lifestyle of being a watchman. One is the the name of a man. The other is the name of a city. And I'll just quickly hit on these two ideas. First, the name of the man is Bezalel. Bezalel is an interesting person because he is the artisan that God anoints to build what Moses saw on the mountain. And I think the revelation there about being a watchman is, again, it's not about staying up to date on all the current issues and then interjecting our responses. That's not what it is. The first vocation of a watchman is to be about Bezalel, where we build a house for God. And we say, God, we want to be a people. We want to be a place where your presence dwells. If you extract the whirlwind, if you extract the glory of God, if you extract the presence of God, Ezekiel doesn't get the commission to be a watchman. It is the glory that empowers him to do what he does in the arena of the prophetic. So if we try to fulfill a commission separated from the presence of God, that commission is going to get very soulish, very carnal, and very off very quickly. So Bezalel teaches us about being a watchman because he builds a house for God according to the vision that Moses saw on the mountain. Amazingly as well is the name Bezalel and what it means. Yes, he built God a house, but that's not where the revelation ends. His name Bezalel means this. Under the shadow of God. When we think of being under the shadow of God, I immediately go to Psalm 91. Most of you know the overall theme of that chapter. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. Again, call to presence first. Call to the bedroom first, the place of intimacy with God. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of Of the Almighty. What does it mean to abide under the shadow of the Almighty? You unpack it throughout the rest of Psalm 91 and it talks about protection from pestilence. It talks about protection from judgment. It talks about protection from attack. In other words, the place of safety is the place of being in God's presence. Go back to the dream. God's looking for watchmen or cities will be no more. If God can find a people who pursue presence, it can bring not only their lives under the shadow of God, and not only their families' lives under the shadow of God, but their cities under the shadow of God. And what would it look like, come on, what would it look like for Psalm 91 to be more than just a personal promise? What if it became a city promise? Because within the city there are watchmen. It doesn't take the whole city. It does not take the whole city. It just takes a handful of watchmen saying, God, we're hungry for your presence. And we know that as your presence is, is filling the house, your shadow hovers above us. And where the shadow of God hovers, the protection of God is there. That's Bezalel. He built a house for God. And in doing so, he brought Israel under the protective shadow of God. Last thing, what's the other name that starts with a B? This one's not the name of a man, it's the name of a city. And it's Betzer. 
B-E-Z-E-R, B-E-Z-E-R. Betzer, pronounced in a different way. Some people say Bezer. That one doesn't feel as sophisticated. So that's why I say Betzer, because I found that pronunciation. I was like, you know what? That one makes me sound more intelligent. I'm going to go with that one. <laughs> Betzer. Now, what's significant about, about Betzer? Three things that's significant about it teaches us about being a watchman. Number one, the name Betzer means an inaccessible place. Most likely, it's a description of its geography. It was a city east of the Jordan. <clears throat> and most likely, it was a city that was up on a plateau that was inaccessible. What does that teach us about being watchmen? When we become watchmen for our cities, our cities become inaccessible to the enemy. Because the shadow of God hovers above it. The shadow of God creates this protective realm in the spirit where the enemy cannot accomplish what he wants to accomplish. An inaccessible place. The second thing about the city Betzer is that it was a Levitical city. Now, what's interesting about Levitical cities? What are Levitical cities? That's a whole teaching. We can't go to the whole thing. But within Israel, there were 48 Levitical cities. Why? Because the Levites did not have their own land to possess. Because God spoke to them and said, When I bring the children of Israel into the promised land, you will not get an inheritance the way they do. Because I am your inheritance. In other words, he says, everybody else gets land, but you get me. But... Now, it's amazing. I get the whole Levites. That's a whole thing to jump into. But consider this. Where were they going to live? They got to live somewhere. They can't all live in Jerusalem, minister in the temple. There are too many Levites. They lived on a rotation. So where do they live when they were not in Jerusalem? They lived in Levitical cities, 48 Levitical cities. They were scattered throughout all the land. So they had a city given to them from one of the other tribes. They would live there most of the year, and then two weeks out of the year, the Levites would come from that city and come and serve in the Temple of Solomon, obviously before that Tabernacle of David, before that Tabernacle of Moses, and so forth. So anyway, so they would come. So these Levitical cities, they were cities that were wholly consecrated to God. It was a city set apart for the purpose of God, a Levitical city. So Bethsaida was not just inaccessible to the enemy, that's great, but it was set apart for the purposes of God. When we become watchmen, our cities become not only inaccessible to the enemy, they become consecrated for the purposes of God. They become set apart in the spirit. They become cities where the presence of God pervades, where the purposes of God prevail, where the kingdom of God is manifested. Listen, God put you where he put you, not on accident, but so you could become a watchman because he wants your city to become a Levitical city, a city where God's purposes prevail. One last thing about Betzar. It was inaccessible. It was a Levitical city. Now, out of the 48 Levitical cities, six of them were designated as cities of refuge. Bethsaida was one of the six cities of refuge. When someone killed someone else unintentionally in order to hide from the avenger of the blood that they accidentally spilled, they could run to a city of refuge and live there and be protected. I believe that on the horizon... And really now, this nation more and more and more will need cities of refuge. Places where God's presence is manifested. Places where God's provision is available. Places where 
they are inaccessible from the harassment of the enemy where people can flock in order to be in a safe place. How do we establish cities of refuge? It's not just through provision, though there's no harm in preparation and, and making sure that there is things in the natural that are ready for days of disaster. We see that in Joseph. Joseph did that. There's nothing wrong with that. However, the primary way that we create cities of refuge is not in the natural. It's in the spirit. It's by becoming watchmen who build God a house right where we are. And when we become the watchmen that God is looking for, who build him a house right where we are, it brings not only his presence, it brings his purposes. Not only brings his purposes, it brings his protection. Not only brings his protection, it brings his character and nature to welcome people into a place of salvation and encounter. God is looking for watchmen. And if watchmen equals friendship with God, sign me up. If watchman equals become a social commentator on everything that comes down the pipeline, I'm not that interested. But that's not what God's looking for. God's not looking for know-it-alls who have something to say on everything that gets posted from the, from the news outlets. That's not what it's about. Watchman is about friendship with God that then initiates intercession. And out of a place of intercession, then you are sensitive to release and to share what God speaks to you for the sake of others. And if God can find those kinds of people, those friends, those intercessors, those obedient sons and daughters, what will it do? It will create cities that are inaccessible to the enemy, filled with the presence of God, consecrated for the purposes of God, and they become cities of refuge, regions of refuge for a world that is going to need it. Amen? Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace Church, you can visit us online at gracechurchnashville.com and find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash gracechurchnash. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.